Jasmine Neal, founder of Fuga Wellbeing and president of the Wellness Chapter for Asia CEO Community. Thanks for joining me for the second episode of our How to Lead for Wellness podcast series. In this series, we discuss how leaders must place a priority on health and wellness and how this ultimately flows down to the bottom line and success of a company. After all, people are an organization's most valuable asset. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into why it's so important to create and maintain an effective wellness program. It's estimated large organizations spend an average of 10.5 million US dollars a year on wellness programs. The list includes exercise incentives, nutritional counseling, stress reduction apps, meditation classes, employee assistance programs, and many more. The list goes on, and healthy breakfasts like Muesli is one of those. However, the reality is that despite spending a lot of time and money, many workplace wellness programs simply miss the mark. As we are talking about how to live for wellness, if you read through our guest, Professor Debbie Hesky-Levando's book, she touches on when we formulate a wellness program, we should think about something beyond offering muesli. This topic really resonated with me. Let's introduce our guest today, Professor Debbie Hesky-Levando, who is the author of Make It Meaningful, How to Find Purpose in Life and Work. Debbie is also an MBA course director for Macquarie University. Debbie has done extensive research that points to some of the reasons why organizations aren't achieving their desired outcomes and will share her own experiences and research that touch on purpose, impact, values, and resilience in life and work. So let's get the conversation started. First, Debbie, congratulations on the launch of your new book. I really enjoyed it so much. One of the messages that really resonated with me was when you say, use your leadership as a force for good in the world. Can you tell us what drove you to write this book and why that was a key message? Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's such a pleasure being here with you today. I wrote the book after 20 years of studying pro-social behavior of individuals and organizations from volunteers to corporate social responsibility. And what I found on the way is that business and business leaders have an immense power to do good in the world. And when they do, they engage all their stakeholders in a really meaningful way. So you've mentioned all the meditation and well-being offered to employees today. But in today's world, especially young people come to expect that their organizations, their employers will be more purpose-driven. This is the most purpose-driven generation. And as employees, they want to not leave their values at the door and work with purpose when they come to work every Monday morning. So business leaders need to lead with a positive impact and start thinking, how can we utilize who we are as a business, what we know, what we do best in order to become a force for good in the world? Look, we live in a world where we have so many issues and problems. We just went through a major global pandemic. Climate change is knocking on our doors. There is still poverty, hunger, gender inequality, and governments alone cannot address these huge issues. So it's about how businesses can then become an important partner to governments and heads of states in achieving the world that we want to see. 
At my company, we also talk a lot about the journey of creating and maintaining a healthy and balanced lifestyle. That there are no shortcuts. I know you have been on a journey yourself. Could you take a bit of time to talk about how this has shaped your own life and made you who you are today? Thank you for this great question. And in the book, Make It Meaningful, I integrate my memoir, how I grew up in a cult-like organization, escaping it at the age of 18 and a half, and how I became who I am, and half a guide for self-development, finding meaning and purpose in life and work. And I share my story because I think a book about meaningfulness must be very personal. And it's funny, people reading the book, even some of my close friends say, wow, we didn't know all of these about you. It's funny to say, but I'm quite a private person. I don't share all these things even with people close to me. But I did in the book because it was a means to an end. I did it because I wanted people to connect to me, to connect to the ideas in the book. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that unless I become very authentic and open in my story. So as the book tells, I was born in Tel Aviv many moons ago. And when I was born, we were a family of five. So I had a bigger brother who was about seven years older than me and an older sister. And very sadly, when I was just born, he was diagnosed with cancer and he passed away when I was three and he was 10. And of course, my mother naturally was so devastated. And I don't remember my brother, but I remember growing up with this immense grief at home. And growing up in a bereaved family can be very scary for young children. And you also feel most of the time that you are not enough because obviously the whole attention goes into the deceased child. Yeah, research shows that siblings of deceased children often feel unseen. They feel like they're not enough. They can't make mm -hmm. their parents happy. Their parents are devastated and they are not enough to fill up their world. So in order to address this meaningless tragedy, my mom was looking for answers and she found them in a cult-like organization, the Kabbalah Center. People may have heard of it because of Madonna and Demi Muir and Gwyneth Flatrow and other celebrities who joined the Kabbalah Center years and years later. But at the time, it was a very small organization and we were part of the inner circle, the early devotees. And the Kabbalah Center offered some kind of answers to my grieving mother. So she was told and she believed that my brother died so that we can all join the Kabbalah Center and spread the light. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds crazy now, but at the time, it gave her some comfort. And so we all joined this organization with its crazy rituals like slaughtering chickens to purify for your sins or diving naked in the sea together. That was our home. That was our family for most of my childhood, all of my childhood, from mm -hmm. the age of five until I was 18 and a half. And a minute before I was arranged to get married in the Kabbalah Center, I was sent to Paris to do what they call in the Kabbalah Center, to do plowing. And it was an eye-opening very traumatic experience for me, after which I couldn't stay in the Kabbalah Center anymore. So I come back home, 18 and a half, completely broken. I 
thought that by leaving the Kabbalah Center and leaving the religious world behind me, my life will be completely empty and meaningless, that I will forever lack a sense of purpose. And it was so devastating that I actually didn't want to leave anymore. But I managed to get through that by doing a very deep meaning search at the age of 18 and a half. I have the journal here that I wrote when I was at that age. And I wrote down my thoughts and my philosophy and my worldview. And after a very deep search, I had to construct my own values and worldview and purpose. And then I decided to go and study philosophy because I wanted to continue my critical thinking and the journey around finding some answers. So I went to study philosophy, but I had no financial support, and I had to go through the week hungry in order to obtain my education. And so what I've done, I've worked in a lot of different jobs, cleaning people's toilets and uh, typing students' assignments. But I've also joined a tutoring program where university students get to work with a child, usually from a disadvantaged family, and in return, you get half your tuition fee waived by the government. So that was an incredible opportunity for me, but it also completely changed my life because for the first time in my life, I could feel what it really is to make a difference in someone else's life. I really helped that boy. In fact, I got in touch with him recently and discovered that not only is he a successful businessman now, and he has a family with two children, but that he still remembers me. He was only eight at the time. So I really made a genuine impact over his life. And that got me so eager to do more. And I volunteered for another year. And then I became the volunteer coordinator and the vice manageress of the entire project. And then I decided to do a master's degree in not-for-profit management because that, I thought that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to lead with a social impact. I want to use who I am and what I know to do good in the world. And so I thought my career will be in the not-for-profit sector. But I really <laughs> fell in love with doing research. And so mm -hmm. I continued to do a PhD on volunteering and then developed an academic career focusing on the good aspects of humanity, on volunteering, on corporate social responsibility, because I've seen enough evil. I just thought mm -hmm. I don't want to, to look at evil behavior anymore. And that's mm -hmm. how I developed my career to where I am today, a professor of corporate social responsibility, purpose and impact. Debbie, it's a really touching story. And I'm very glad that you used your own journey and create some impact to the community and to the world. I think I read in your book, you touch on the seven essential ingredients for a meaningful life, which includes spirituality and how you achieve this through yoga, which, by the way, I enjoyed so much. My organization has an initiative that is focused on helping organizations raise the bar on wellness. So can you give us some suggestions on how organizations can successfully blend some of these ingredients into their wellness programs? Sure. So there are seven enablers that I list in the book around what can help us. What are the levers that can help us find meaningfulness in life and at work? And the first one is actually connectedness. And I think it's also part of spirituality because when I looked at some definitions of spirituality, 
It was about connectedness to other humans, to animals, to nature. And I think we need to start with that. And an organization, an employer, a company that cultivate a sense of connectedness among its employees. It's the first essential step in creating employee well-being. I mean, yoga is great. I'll talk about yoga in a mm-hmm. second. But if you are not doing that, if employees have a sense of disconnect when they come back to work, when they feel like they, there is their private life, which I can celebrate on Saturday and Sunday, and then there is the work life, which means that a lot of people suffer from Monday morning depression because I don't want to go to this place, which is completely disconnected from who I am. But when you feel like you are in this great level of belonging and connectedness to the workplace, when you really love your peers, your colleagues, when you love what you do and you are proud to be part of the organization that you work for, you don't have Monday mornings blues. And so it's very important to first start with that and to create a culture in the workplace where everyone feels appreciated, recognized, seen, connected, and a sense of belonging. And by that, I mean everyone, no matter what your background is, no matter what you look like, what you sound like, what you can or cannot do, whatever it is that your background is, you are valued for who you are as a person. A second enabler before I get to spirituality is authenticity, is understanding who you are and being true to yourself in life and at work. And when I wrote the book, I always looked up the meaning of words. <laughs> it's a book about meaning, right? <laughs> and so I looked at the meaning of the word authenticity. And one definition really stood out, and it was feeling worthy of acceptance. And I thought, my, how wonderful it is when you come to your workplace, when you come to your work and you feel worthy of acceptance. You feel that you are accepted for who you are. You don't need to hide who you are in any sense, not your sexual preference, not your background. You don't need to explain how you're going to work well, even though you have children. You don't need to explain how you're going to be a great employee, even though you have some kind of a foreign accent which create conscious or unconscious bias. And so authenticity is another important enabler. You touched on spirituality. And as you can imagine, it took me a really long time to rediscover my spirituality. When you grow up in a spiritual cult, and then you discover that spirituality was only used to gain money and power, the word is tainted for you forever. It's very hard for anyone who grew up in any kind of the surroundings to reconnect to spirituality. But over the years, I started discovering that I'm not a materialistic person. Yes, of course, I like having a beautiful house and beautiful things, but that's not what really gives me joy. What gives me joy is connecting with people on a profound level. What gives me joy is the sense that I can create an impact in the world, that my students go on my birthday and do acts of kindness on my behalf. That really gave me joy more than any other gift that I got on that birthday. So that was the first step to say, okay, if I'm not materialistic, what am I? And I thought, maybe I'm spiritual in my way. 
And then when I looked at some of the definitions of spirituality and I looked around connectedness to humans, animals, and nature, the understanding that we are all interconnected, there is also something greater than ourselves. Now, some people use that as a way to connect to some kind of God or religion, but some people like me, I use this to think about what is the greatest good that I can create? How do I connect to everyone? How do I help achieve what humanity needs? And it may sound like a big ambition, but if we all think this way, then we can really overcome poverty and hunger in the world because we can all contribute towards the solutions. So that was my way of doing spirituality. Six years ago, I had an accident, which meant I couldn't walk for six months and I suffered depression because I was in bed for six months and I couldn't see anyone. It was very depressing. Coming out of this and trying to heal, I discovered yoga. And I first went online and I did like online classes. And then I was really hooked because I started to discover the amazing effect that yoga had on my body and on my spirit. I share in the book that for two years I had an eye twitch and I went to all the doctors and no one could solve it. And some said it might be stress. And I was like, okay, what do I do with that? And then when I started doing yoga after two weeks, I discovered that my eye twitch just disappeared after two years. And so it's, it's just a wonderful way for me to connect my body and my mind and to learn how to breathe. <laughs> it's funny, but only after the age of 40, I learned how to breathe properly. I learned how to breathe through pain and how to be one with pain. And I learned how to accept who I am and to be fully present. All of that is part of, you know, what I do in yoga every single day and how I connect to my spirituality. That and music. <laughs> thanks, Effie. Uh, I think uh, everyone's journey is different. Yeah. And uh, thanks for sharing your journey, how you discover and um, move forward. In our research, we also discovered there can be often a lack of awareness or ability of leaders to own and address what's not working in their wellness programs. Leadership capabilities, organizational designs, and workplace systems can make or break employee well-being. What gaps have you discovered in your professional and academic career? Why do you think they developed and how can they be successfully addressed? This is a really excellent question, and I think the biggest gap for companies is companies that don't walk the talk. When there is a misalignment between what I tell the world that I do and what I actually do, not only am I misleading, but I am creating a culture where I kind of communicate to people that I don't care if they trust me or not. So when companies say, yeah, we are really good for the environment and they have all these ads about sustainability. But when you actually look into it, you discover an immense environmental harm that they cause either by the way they create their products or the way that consumers use their products, the impact of their products on people's health, on the planet, on the local community, and so on. That gap between words and actions can create a very dark space that companies need to overcome. I just saw an ad this morning by Unilever about the cost of toxic beauty, how young adolescents 
especially girls, are exposed to unachievable standards of beauty and how it can lead to eating disorders and self-harm. And it was a beautiful ad. I was really in tears mm-hmm. watching it in the morning. But then I thought, let's see if they really walk the talk. So I went into Google and I said, Unilever Dove ads. And the ads were just so beautiful. Everything was about celebrating real women, diversity, all ages, all body shapes. And I could see that they really did walk the talk. I couldn't find one ad with an unattainable beauty standard that would communicate to young women and girls that they're not good enough. So when companies are looking at their corporate social responsibility, they need to mind the gap. They need to make sure that their actions and deeds and their words are aligned. And that could also be a trap, like you mentioned, with employee well-being. Because if I say to employees, I'm giving you yoga and mindfulness and meditation, I'm kind of shoving the ball into the employee's hands. And I'm saying, I'm giving it to you, but it's your responsibility to be well. Well, the first question is, why are employees in your company so stressed? And if it's a work-life balance, if it's a workload issue, then fix the issue first. Don't expect so much from the employees to the level where they're so stressed and then say, oh, take some mindfulness workshop. So you have to be very careful about that. We're now seeing two incredible phenomena. One is the great resignation and the other one is quite quitting. Great resignation after COVID 40% of employees either left their work or are trying to leave their work. That's incredible. But quiet quitting is the one that's less spoken about. And quiet quitting happens when employees say, I'm not going the extra mile anymore. I'll do my work. I'll do my, you know, whatever it says in my job description, but I'm not going to work the extra hours until 10 p.m. or from 5 a.m. And I'm not going to go crazy for work. And in a way, I think it's a very healthy response to what was happening in the workforce in the last 20 years, because employees were seen as resources to be extracted. And we need to be mindful of employee well-being every step of the way. And I think there was, you know, there's all this conversation around employee engagement. And I remember writing reports about employee engagement and how to cultivate that through CSR and corporate volunteering. Engagement, engagement, engagement. Everyone wanted their employees to be engaged, but there was some engagement abuse. Mm. We expected employees to do far above and behind what is required of them. And that's not always fair. And so employees are now voting (laughs) with their actions and saying, no more. I don't want to be an engaged employee. Don't put me into organizational citizenship behavior. Let me balance my life and my work. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a great opportunity for employers to rethink the way that they use and involve their employees. Thanks for sharing for this. And I think it's super important if a successful company, they need to be purpose-driven instead of, um, you know, doing something more, trying to manipulate the employee themselves. Yeah. What do you think makes a good leader when it comes to managing and promoting wellness in the workplace? And um, do you think that this has changed since the pandemic? I've seen some amazing business leaders. 
And what I can say about these leaders is that they always led with an open heart. So we could go into all this leadership theory around, you know, Pascal theory and, and um, shared leadership and, and successful leadership and so on. But what I could see is people who are strongly connected to themselves and to others, the ones who lead with an open heart, even with vulnerability, the ones that share their story and the way that the world also impacts them, and the ones who try to use their leadership position and power in order to lead positive change. These are the purpose-driven leaders are the ones who really move their employees. If I can give you one example, I worked with Konica Minolta in Sydney and their managing director at the time, Dr. David Cook, was one such leader. And I got my students, my CSR, Corporate Social Responsibilities, to come and meet him. And he shared how visiting Cambodia and helping sex trafficking survivors as young as three or five completely broke his heart and changed his mindset. And when he came back to Australia after visiting Cambodia, he harnessed the entire company to become a warrior for human rights. He actually helped to pass the law on modern slavery in Australia, the Modern Slavery Act. And he became such an advocate for human rights. And I remember sitting in there and my students were coming to hear him speak. And he was talking with tears streaming down his face. And he shared a story where he asked this one activist who was helping to save these girls in Cambodia. I said, why do you do that? And this guy said, you know, I once saved a six-year-old girl from sex slavery. I had to break into a, a building and save her and take her out. And you would think that that would change who I am, and that's why I did it. But it's not. It's the eight-year-old sister who I couldn't save that makes me do that. And David was telling the stories with an open heart, with tears, and everyone in my class were just crying with him because it's such a, a moving story coming from a very moving leader. Leaders in the past thought they needed to be very macho-like and strong and powerful and tell people what to do. And if you watch you know, series like Succession and you see these business leaders that are unethical, they just swear all the time, they, they abuse people. And I think that kind of leadership is really phasing out. People are no longer accepting that kind of leaders. We now want to see compassionate and conscious leaders, even in the business world. Actually, I totally agree with that. And um, thanks for sharing um, your uh, insight on that. You are very generous with your time and insights. So I wanted to see if you have other messages you would like to share with our community. Um, I'd love to share the main idea in the book, which is the TIP mm -hmm. model. And the TIP model says the way to discover your purpose. And by purpose, I mean, you know, a, a sense of feeling that you're doing something that's good, 
that you're doing something that makes a difference. And a lot of people say, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know what's my passion. This is overwhelming. So I tried to come in with a very simple framework, a very simple tool that would allow people and organization to find their purpose and live by their purpose. And I say, discover what your talent is. What are your skills? What knowledge you have? Network, education, books you read, anything. And that's your talent. And you usually bring your talent into your job. The other thing is your passion. And like I said, it doesn't have to be something huge. It could be something small that you care about. Animals, children, human rights, LGBT community, anything, the planet, nature, your local park, something that you care about, even something that makes you angry. The fact that still women in Australia make 16% less than men makes me angry. I want to do something about it. And so tie these two, tie your talent to your passion to try and make a difference. And that would be your impact. So the TIP stands for talent, impact, passion. And you tie these three, that becomes your purpose. This is how you live a more purposeful life. It's not like there is one purpose that you need to discover. You're not going to have a light bulb moment. Someone's not going to knock on your door saying, ha, hello, Jasmine, here is your life purpose. (laughs) Not going to happen. You just start living a more purposeful life by asking yourself, and I ask myself every day, every single day, how can I use today to make a positive impact in the world? Mm. And if I just lived the day and I didn't do anything that helped anyone, I feel like I wasted my day. So I need to ask myself every day, what do I do to create a positive impact in the world? And that could be really small, small acts of kindness. Uh, there is something called micro-volunteering now, where people go and help not-for-profit organizations by following them and liking them on social media and helping them fundraise and so on. These are the little things that we can all do. And once you start, you will discover how addictive mm-hmm. it is to make a difference in people's life. But it's the best addiction you're all only um, ever going to have. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Debbie. I really learned a lot for this podcast and thank you for joining us today. It was a very great conversation and one that I know a lot of people who are very interested in this topic will find of value as they think of ways they can make their own organization a healthier and a more productive place to work. As we sign off, I encourage you to pick up a book of Debbie's book. It's a really great read. I would like leaders to think about how they can lead by example and create a workplace that embodies many of the qualities that Debbie shared with us today. After all, there's no downside to an organization that is purpose-driven, passionate, impactful, and resilient. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>